So I would stress don't just send in one smear. We love it. It makes our job really quick, but (laughs) the chances of a diagnosis are much, much lower if you do that. Hi, I'm Hubert. This is Gerardo. And you are listening to the VetBob Clinical Podcast. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Rebecca Liffman. Rebecca is a clinical pathologist at ASAP Laboratories in Victoria, which is one of the labs that make up the SVS Pathology Network. Now, if you've listened to our previous pathology episode with Dr. Flaminia Chiasetto, you know that your favorite local lab is probably also part of the SVS Pathology Network. That be VetPath in Western Australia and in the Northern Territory, QML if you're a Queenslander like me, Vetnostics in New South Wales and in ACT, TML in Tasmania, and ASAP Laboratories in Victoria and South Australia. A massive thank you to SVS for supplying us with the brains for this episode. That's Rebecca, definitely not me, and for supporting this series of episodes. I interrogate Rebecca with some burning questions that I've had for most of my career and that I've had several heated disagreements about with my colleagues over the years. Like, how do we ensure that we get good quality FNA smears that have the best chances of being diagnostic? To suck or not to suck? What can and can't you FNA? For example, did you know that you can get great results from FNAs of bone pathology? Pitfalls around blood sampling and CSF sampling. Spoiler alert, it's not as complicated as you might think. So please enjoy Dr. Rebecca Liffman. You did emergency for a stint, yeah? Did, yeah. So I did three years as GP work and then only managed one year as an emergency critical care vet. <laughs> and then, then the night shifts got to me. And then so how did you get from from emergency to pathology? What was the what was the trigger? Oh, I thought, what is the opposite of emergency? <laughs> <laughs> I sat down one day and I Googled, what else can I be doing where I can sleep and I can leave on time? Um, no, but I, I did always like clean path at uni, but there was never an opportunity to do it in Australia. And then just as luck would have it when I was looking at what else can I do, they just advertised the first clean path residency in Australia. So uh, I applied and snuck in before anyone knew it was available. The, the very first one in Australia, really? Yeah, they've had anatomic pathology residencies for a while, but clean path specific, as far as I know, it's at least the first first one in a while anyway. All right, should we talk about pathology? Let's do that. <laughs> so I'll tell you where this idea for, for this particular episode was born for me. Uh, well, it's one example. But when, when I was back in the UK, I did a lot of ultrasound, and I'd take my ultrasound-guided FNAs and send my slides off to the, the lab, which, whoever we used. And there was a pathologist there who always sent me comments to say, there's ultrasound gel on your slide. It's making it hard for me to do <laughs> And I swear, I got so self-conscious about it. I would clean that animal so cleanly and I'd still get, ah, there's, there's some, you know, ultrasound gel. But, but I've always had this thing about, okay, well, there's, there's that stupid thing that I'm doing as a clinician. Well, not stupid, I suppose, uninformed thing that makes my pathologist's job harder and makes my results potentially worse. And then I've often wondered, what else do we do? Anything from blood samples all the way to more complicated things. And I'm sure you coming from a a clinician and an emergency clinician's perspective, are there things that as a pathologist now you look back and go, oh, I can't believe I did that, or 
yeah, I wish I could tell all the vets out there to stop doing that because they'll get much better results if they if they just fix that. Are there are there lots of things like that, or are there some things like that? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's a big list, and I look at it now, and I think half of them I actually did when I was a clinician. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure. I'm very sympathetic with what it's like to be a clinician and how much you can actually achieve, particularly in things like emergency and when you have a completely packed schedule. To start off with this podcast, it's very easy for me to sit in my little office and say, oh, no, you should be doing this and you should be doing four or five FNAs from every lump, but then you have a you know, big snarling German shepherd and <laughs> it's easier said than done. But, yes, there are absolutely some really simple things you can do to um, increase your chances of a diagnosis with a ClinPath. Awesome. So the first thing, is the ultrasound gel an actual thing or was she just using it as an excuse? <laughs> it is an actual thing, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's um, even just the smallest amount of ultrasound gel when it's when we get it you know microscopically, it can really obscure a whole lot of really interesting things down there. So it can be really sad for us when we say, oh my gosh, you got such a good sample, and I feel like I should be able to make a diagnosis. But what actually happens is the ultrasound gel just sucks up all the stain. So ah. not only does it obscure the cells, it actually means that the cells don't stain properly. Okay, there we go. So tip number one is if you do ultrasound guided, clean off the gel before you aspirate, yes? Exactly right. The, the weird thing is I've never had, that was 10 years ago. I don't know if I had a different kind of gel, but I've never had another pathologist comment on my slides. Maybe they're just too polite to say anything. <laughs> maybe you've, maybe if you've uh, fixed your technique. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a fairly obscure one. Should we go to bloods first? I mean, that's the most common pathology thing we do. We take blood, send it to the lab. Are there things in that process even that could make our results more reliable or your job easier? I think generally submission of blood samples are quite good from our clinicians. The most important thing is I know Min previously, our anatomic pathologist, spoke about a history. And I would stress that histories are probably even more important with blood submissions than they are with cytologies. Especially if you want to if you're paying for a pathologist interpretation, history is just so vital so we don't need a big history we just need a few lines really of why you're submitting this sample what you want us to look for and really it's because with blood interpretations something like an anemia has 10 differential diagnoses Mm -hmm. so we can just list them all for you but really if you're able to give us a history we can actually prioritize what we think is most likely and look for things that we may not focus on as much otherwise Mm -hmm. So history for bloods is really number one. Okay. Sorry, with the history, details, like do you want to know all the clinical signs? It's vomiting. Like what, what's relevant? What's just wasting your time to read through? I think probably any treatment the animals are on. So <coughs> a classic one is corticosteroids. If they're on prednisolone, we won't go into all the differentials such as liver disease and hyperadrenocorticism because you've told us this animal's on pred. Yeah. We'll say that the neutrophilia will be secondary to pred. We'll say the monocytosis is secondary to pred, which means we won't waffle on as much for you guys. Yeah. Um, same thing if we have a cat that has a low total T4, instead of doing all these really weird differential diagnoses, you know, how many cats actually have hypothyroidism yeah. if you tell us it's on methimazole we'll yeah. tell you oh okay cool. you're over supplementing yeah and that's just a one word yeah. diagnosis for you okay so treatment is very important i think just why they've come in that's a really classic one one line and clinical signs are, yeah really good 
Okay, great. I was just going to say, just if you're not sure which tubes you need, just give us a call because, again, one of the many things I did now as a clinician is I was like, mm, I can't remember which coloured tubes for what thing, and I just submit all of them, hoping that one was correct, and that's fine. But I was always shy to call the lab and just ask, but we're really friendly and we're more than happy to help you with that. <laughs> Are there common mistakes that you experience on your end where the wrong tube arrives, where somebody's asking for the X and then they've got the wrong tube? The classic thing really is for coax. That's where tubes are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And often it's because the tubes have been under or overfilled and then they're useless. Okay. Um, and also if the tubes are expired with coax, that becomes useless as well. And do they have to stay upright in the fridge? Do you have to store them? Am I, am I making that up? No, it doesn't matter? No, all okay. good. Okay. No, that's fine. If you have exotic animals, feel free to give us a call because obviously you can't always get a lot of blood and lithap samples um, or lithap tubes, I should say, can often achieve both biochem and haematology. Yep. And the other thing is you can make a blood smear when you actually take a sample just to keep it fresh, but there's not a big need. So if you just okay. want to send in an EDTA, we always make a smear and we always look at that smear okay. at our lab. Okay, because I'd heard that before, that it helps if you do a fresh smear, but you say not, not a huge not help. Not a big so issue. The only time it might be really useful is if you're particularly worried about platelet counts. You're less likely to get platelet clumping if you make a nice fresh film just as you're taking it. Mm -hmm. And then we can actually do an, an estimate for you, but it's not super important. Okay, that's good to know. In terms of, I know hemolysis is always a big issue. Um, are there any other reasons of where you take jugular versus cephalic or something like that? Does it does it matter at all or not really? No, no. As you said, hemolysis is is more more likely if you're having a difficult collection or if you're using a small needle. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, no, nope, you can take it from wherever you like. How big should your needle be? What's your what your if you had to go back into practice? What are you taking blood with? What color? Blue or green? I Blue think. or green. And then the other thing that I've heard two different opinions on, it sounds like a silly thing, but you, okay, you've got your EDTA sample and then your uh, lithep or, or serum sample. You don't want any EDTA in your serum sample, that's right. So and my question is going to be, which one do you fill first? The EDTA? Because in my head, I want to get the blood that's going to clot into the anticoagulant first so I, so I get a nice unclotted sample for you. But then there's also the risk of contaminating your other sample with EDTA. Is that, is it's that spot on. It's not a silly question and it's actually pretty controversial. So uh, okay. it's, it's controversial to get in the pathology world. <laughs> so, yes, you're quite right with both those respects. So most people I think these days will say do your serum sample first so mm -hmm. that you don't get that risk of EDTA contamination, and, which and I would stress we only see every, you know, few weeks. So it's not common. And just so we know, what does that cause again if you do get EDTA in there? you'll get a very high potassium and a very low calcium. Okay. So you think mm. your animal's dying and actually you just touch the EDTA with your needle. <laughs> exactly. So if you ever get a really high, high potassium and you're worried your animal's dying, check the calcium. And yeah. if that is very low, it's probably a contamination. Ah, I didn't know about the calcium. That's good mm. to know. All right. So my approach is I, I'll do EDTA first. But I'm super, super careful. Like I hold it above the tube, and then I'll, then I've got, then I can take my time to put it in the other one. But uh, yep, that's perfectly fine. Okay. Yep. We're going to interrupt you for a minute to tell you a few things that you didn't know about our sponsor for this episode, the SVS Pathology Network. We'll skip over the stuff you already know: top quality labs, 
super user-friendly and extensive range of tests with more specialized tests than one vet could hope to use an entire lifetime. In fact, we're planning a whole episode on specialized testing just so that we're aware of what is actually possible and available. What you're unlikely to know about your favorite local lab, well, that being if you're in Australia, for our overseas listeners, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to miss out. But what you won't know is how they're growing and evolving major investments in modernizing their infrastructure platforms and national logistic networks, as well as their instrument technology, adding new test development capabilities. I actually have a bit of behind the scenes information here, and I'll just say there's some really exciting stuff coming, so watch this space. But what I really want to talk about is their people. Did you know that they have the largest number of boarded veterinary pathologists in, Austra- in Australasia? That's a lot of nerds under one roof. <laughs> but, but here's what I'm learning through doing these interviews. And I'm sure that you're learning through listening to them as well. They're not nerds. They're actually really cool. My whole preconceived notion, which to be fair was shaped in my student days by some classic characters, of dusty old pathologists is being completely destroyed. And the best bit is that you can call them. And it's not just the pathologists that you can call. They also have a team of specialist medicine consultants who are happy to chat about your tricky cases. Not just about the path results, but also about what to do next in your workups and even your treatment plan. I know you're listening to this episode thinking, Beck sounds like she's really nice to talk to. And she is. And if you're not calling them, then look out for them on the interwebs on the Clinical Excellence Support Program, which is a collection of pathology-related continuing education talks, webinars, and web content. We'll link to some of that in the show notes. Now, back to Rebecca. Anything else with bloods, blood samples? You say we do all right with that. Yeah, yeah. No, really just history is number one. Yeah, smears if you like. But no, otherwise I think bloods are fairly straightforward. Okay. So I started with my question about the gel and the FNAs. Anything else around FNAs? I mean, that can be quite tricky to get a, a good smear and a good sample and not squashed. And so, first of all, I suppose technique. I mean, you would have in your years, you would have done a lot of FNAs. Knowing what you know now, would you have changed anything about what you've done or how you did it? Oh, everything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Good question. So I know that when I was a clinician, I used to uh, be very dramatic about it. So I'd do an FNA and I'd squirt like the the material onto the slide from a great distance with a lot of force and it'd look very very dramatic for the client and I wouldn't spread it and I'd submit it and somehow I got occasional diagnoses (laughs) but I'm not not quite sure how because I now now realize that was entirely the wrong technique okay so the best method is to uh, try and get four or five FNAs of a lump if you can and that might produce five to 10 slides, depending on if when you smear it, you submit both those, there's both the spreader slide and the actual slide, which is fine. At our lab, you can submit as many slides from a single site okay. and that's all included as a single cytology charge. Okay, cool. So I would stress, don't just send in one smear. Yeah. Um, we love it. It makes our job really quick, but <laughs> the chances of a diagnosis are much, much lower if you do that. You can get to typing insufficient sample very quickly <laughs> if it's just exactly, a single exactly <laughs> exactly and i do get a bit sad every time uh, i write that because you've been on the other end of that later going oh shit i've got to phone these clients and tell them to come absolutely. back again <laughs> absolutely yeah. so yes four or five if you can if the animal will let you mm-hmm. the other really important thing is if you have the time 
or if you can make the time, pre-stain and have a look and see if you have anything. Yeah. So this is maybe one of the few things I used to always do correctly when I was a vet and I worked in a practice where they were quite good with cytology and would encourage us to look at everything before we submitted it. And just pre-staining one or two of those slides with diff weeks, seeing if you have any cells there mm -hmm. is really good way to increase the chances of getting a diagnosis. Yeah. I realise that a lot of vets say, I don't know if it's diagnostic or not. I'm not a cytologist, um, which is totally fair enough. But even if you just see if there's anything on there, that's yeah. a great start. In anything and especially, so I, I do it, but I also I really like cytology. I think it's from my days in South Africa where any, every single animal had to have a blood smear at least to check that it doesn't have babesia or something. So I like looking at stuff and especially with lumps and bumps, I find it quite interesting. I'll check and I'll try and make a diagnosis in my head and then trying to learn through that to see, well, yes, I was way off or I nailed that exactly. one. <laughs> They're the tricky ones. But yeah, absolutely right. It can, it's one of the few things where you can actually get feedback from and in a very timely manner. So a few days later, you'll get your, get your answer and see if you were right. So I think it can be really fun. Yep. And I'm amazed at how good some clinicians are at cytology. A lot of them will write what they think it is and with a lot of practice or a bit of practice even mm -hmm. quite good at it. So yep. yes, I say absolutely please pre-stain your slides, just one or two of them to make sure there's something on it. And I know a lot of clinicians say, I'm so sorry I put quick on it, but I would much rather, I would much prefer having a look at a pre-stained slide than a non-diagnostic one. Okay, that's interesting because I'm always very sensitive to not pre-staining it in case my stain's too dark or something like that but you say that's okay mostly it should be all right absolutely we restain them anyway oh you do um so yep yep so we chuck them on our stainer again even if they're pre-stained and look they might be a bit darker than what we're used to but yep. generally they're, they're going to be diagnostic so we're quite happy to get them oh that's good to know um i just want to clarify something if you say four four samples per mass if you can so that's as in starting fresh new needle New syringe, starting the whole process four times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I'm not sure if you need a new needle every single time, but at least pass it through that lesion four times straight onto the slide and then smear it. And then the other thing is suction. With Does that vary between mass to mass? Or I know, for example, we spoke to a, an oncologist the other day who said don't apply suction when you're aspirating lymph nodes for possible lymphoma. Is that a general rule? Like, do you just stab and wiggle it around or do you actually get it in the mass and try and actually aspirate, you know, put That's suction it. on the syringe? Yeah, another really good question. Another very controversial one ah. in the pathology one. Okay. <laughs> so, no, this is one that I didn't know the answer to when I was a resident and I actually looked into a whole lot of human studies to try and work out that answer. Mm -hmm. And the studies are conflicting about okay. whether you need suction or not. So seems to to be that if you're likely to get a lot of blood contamination probably don't use suction okay. so organs such as liver or spleen mm -hmm. maybe stay away from it things like lymph nodes where you have really fragile cells probably stay away from suction okay whereas if you have a really firm mass that you're worried about something like a sarcoma or a carcinoma suction might be indicated in that case if you're uncertain and you're doing four Aspirates do 50-50. Do suction on two Absolutely and not suction right. on another two. There we Absolutely go. right. Yep. I think just uh, change up your technique and see, and hopefully one of them will be diagnostic. Great stuff. And then the spreading itself. So you said you never spread when you were at a clinic. You just sort of spread it out. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that. I've made those smears and it's just like a little mountain of cells, basically. Yeah, with, exactly. with one or two cells on the edge. <laughs> I thought I'd done such a good job because there's so much on that slide. <laughs> 
how much pressure are you putting on that slide? And again, does that vary between different things, or is it have you, do you have a standard technique for each? If you had to go and do it again now, so very little is the answer to that okay. in terms of how much pressure. So literally, get another slide, place it on top, mm-hmm. and just pull them apart. Yeah. So don't. So don't push um, down. unfortunately, that's called a squash prep, but that's a terrible name. Try not to squash them. Yeah. Uh, and that yeah, that's the best way to do it. Okay. Is there anything else with FNAs that I'm missing? Label with pencil, please. Please, please, please. Pen does wash off with our staining technique. Okay. And even though our scientists will always try to write in pencil, if you submit with pen, sometimes it's not that obvious. And then we end up with slides that are unlabeled. Okay. Um, and that can be a problem. And what about your like a little Sharpie, little permanent marker? Is that going to wash off as well? It does. Okay. Pencil is the go. Yep. So have a pencil. pencil okay, I can see the workflow issue here. You're trying to make your slides and you can't find a freaking pencil <laughs> in the <Exactly>. whole practice. <laughs> because that's why we do it. In, you know that's why we do it in pen, because I have a pen in my pocket. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, if you can go and get that vet student to uh, run around the clinic and find you a pencil, <laughs> okay. we will be very grateful. Okay. Each clinic needs a secret pencil drawer for the slides. And- yes, or a secret vet student. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> is it worth aspirating spleen? When you look at spleen slides, do you get enough diagnosis from it? Because I've heard some people say, oh, it's such a vascular organ, it's not really worth even sending stuff off. Is the spleen worth sticking needles into? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so there have been a few things that I've, since being a pathologist, I think there are a lot of myths out there. Okay. So in terms of which organs are useful for cytology and which aren't, spleens can be. particularly if you have a big mass. I have diagnosed sarcomas, uh, carcinomas, things like that, just from aspirates of a spleen. If you have splenic nodules, there's a very good chance it's just going to be lymphoid hyperplasia or EMH, which Mm -hmm. is a very boring diagnosis for us to give and for you to receive. Mm -hmm. But certainly the big splenic masses, I think they're worthwhile. Mm -hmm. There's a few other things that actually are worthwhile, such as bone lesions. Yeah. It can be fantastic on cytology. Yeah. So frequently make a diagnosis of osteosarcoma or fungal osteomyelitis, things like that on cytology. So if it's soft enough to, for you to put a needle in, um, by all means, give FNA a go. Yeah. Things that are not so good okay. for cytology, uh, mammary masses. Okay. Really? not so helpful often there's inflammation and often they're epithelial cells and we just feel that if we tell you it's inflammation there's good chance that there's going to be a neoplasm we're not seeing okay and really you need to assess tissue architecture with those neoplasms to know if they're malignant or benign okay cool so i would almost say don't bother right and cystic lesions i think every time someone says sent in fluid from a cystic lesion my diagnosis is cystic fluid (laughs) Which is not when you go, yeah, I I knew knew that. Thank you very much, (laughs) genius. (laughs) Yeah, so if you're worried that there might be an infection in there, by all means, go for it. But if you think that cystic fluid, um, we will too. The other one that I've again had different opinions throughout my career is prostate. If you're looking for prostate pathology, and this might be more of a clinician's question, but I was taught to lean towards a prostate wash versus a a fine needle aspirate. I don't know. Is, is there a better one? Which one do you prefer? What gives you better results? Is it worth sticking needle? Because there's, a, it's a bit more challenging to stick a needle into a prostate for a start, technically, because yeah. it's right at the back there. What would you do if you had a, you're a clinician, 
dog's got a big prostate, how are you going to get a sample from it? So prostate lesions are one of my favourite cytologies Ooh. to look at, okay. <laughs> prostates and bladders. I think that we are very good on at, at, it's on cytology at making diagnosis of urothelial cell carcinomas mm-hmm. if you sample the lesions. Okay. Same with septic prostatitis. We frequently can get a diagnosis on cytology and even benign prostatic hyperplasia. If we don't see any evidence of malignancy or inflammation in an entire male dog and you've seen a big prostate, we're pretty happy to call it on cyto. So I love prostate FNAs. Okay. Okay. So sticking, <laughs> if you, so if you say cyto, you mean fine little aspirates rather than a prostate wash. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So prostatic washes can still be really useful. The cells are just often not quite as nicely preserved because they've been sitting in saline for a while. But by all means, you can still get a diagnosis. I think I should mention too, one of the reasons that a lot of clinicians are very hesitant to do FNAs of bladder or prostate tumours is because of the risk of tumour seeding. Mm Correct. Urothelia, also known as transitional cell carcinomas, have been reported to metastasize or seed into the needle tracts, mm-hmm. and that has is a is a possibility. But I would say it's um, a low low risk of it. And if you balance that with the chance of getting a non-invasive diagnosis quite easily, mm-hmm. um, I would still, if it was my dog, I'd probably lean towards going for an FNA. Realistically, if it's got prostate cancer. It's- that's how I feel, you but know, I'm not an oncologist. You know, you know maybe they come up with something fantastic for treating yeah. it. But yeah. exactly right. And yeah. and there's even reports of tumor seeding literally around the, the vulva or the perineum just from a urine scalding. So oh, what? It, yeah, it doesn't even stop the chances of, of tumor seeding. Okay. So while we're in that area, uh, let's talk about urine if we're looking for, for cancers and stuff. And you said yeah. for, for that, FNAs, again, is the, the preferable way of doing it. Stick a needle into it. If you can. I think so. Occasionally we will give a diagnosis of uh, transitional cell carcinoma just from urine samples, mm-hmm. but often we're a bit hesitant to call it because the cells really can exfoliate and get a bit sad looking, which means the preservation isn't nearly as good. Okay, great. The other one, the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid cytology, if I can technically do the procedure, what do I need to do to make sure I get a good answer from that? Because I'm aware that they're very sensitive. Is that right? Well, t- talk me through CSF samples. Can I do it in GP practice and still get a good result? And, and if so, how do I manage those samples? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're brave enough to collect CSF, I know I wasn't when I was a GP, but absolutely, if you feel you're capable of it, which I think probably a lot of people are, particularly if they're um, not able to refer. Yeah. A lot of people will submit in total about a mil mm-hmm. of CSF in both EDTA and plain tubes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will actually taxi those samples over to us rather than wait for the couriers to deliver them overnight. Yeah. And that is because it will ensure cell preservation for us to look at. So we can still get really nice cell counts. We can still get nice protein concentrations in an older sample. Mm-hmm. But if we want to look at cell morphology, a fresh sample is particularly important with CSF. Okay. That being said, um, we do get a lot of people that submit overnight samples and most of the time they're fine. Okay. So it's not such a big... So because I, I was always worried about doing this technically challenging, slightly scary, costly procedure and then not handling my sample well enough to get a result. So I always go, well, just send it somewhere else. But you say it's not such a big drama if you if it is a bit, yeah. 
Absolutely still worth submitting, even if it doesn't come to us for a little while. Okay. And even if you can just get a cell count, the nice thing about CSF is the difference between a normal one and an abnormal one is often quite dramatic. Um, So with a meningitis, you'll get a huge cell count as opposed to a a normal CSF, which has barely anything in there. Okay. In an ideal world, how long between collecting it and getting it to you? If you can do it within 12 hours, that's ideal. So it's not like it has to be fresh out the dog onto the microscope sort of a thing. Look, some people do it that way, and so often we literally get the samples within, you know, one or two hours of collection, and that's great for us. Yeah. But I often, yeah, I, I still think most samples we get are diagnostic, even if they're often one to two days old. Okay, great. And then on the CSF topic, pre-treatment with specifically steroids, that am I right in thinking that that kind of ruins it, makes it almost, let's say you have your neurological dog, it's on steroids for whatever reason, and then the clients decide, well, I want to investigate. Is, is it still worth doing CSF then? I think generally with steroids and testing, if the steroids mean that the animal is better, mm-hmm. then that's how we're going to see those test results. Okay, gotcha. So if the dog responds beautifully and is a 100% normal dog when you put it on steroids, then we're probably going to get a pretty normal CSF. Same with things like immune-mediated polyarthritis and even skin diseases. I think with biopsies, they say the same thing. If mm. they're getting better, then yes, it's going to affect our results. If they're still sick, by all means, still worth us having a look. Okay, great. That's good to know. Because, yeah, again, often you – because that's why you decide to go further diagnostically because the animal's not responding. But then you go, oh, it's been on a steroid, so that sort of takes that test off the table, but it doesn't. You say still do it. No. Go for it. Absolutely. Great. This is so good. Thank you very much. Uh, anything else? Where I, I, th- I think those kind of cover most of my questions, but are there other things that I'm missing that you, again, like I said at the beginning, that, that you know we could do better? The only thing is actually to, to give us a call more. So I think a lot of people think of us pathologists as hating people and sitting in our office and not, <laughs> not wanting to engage, but most of us are actually the opposite and we you know often the highlight of our day is when you guys give us a call and say (laughs) (laughs) we actually get to talk to people and you say actually you know can you talk me through what you're saying because I don't really get this part of your report or even when you you call up and say look this doesn't sit right with me you know this doesn't correspond to what I'm seeing and what your diagnosis is that's fine we really like that we really like to be able to help you um, understand all often change what we're saying based on on that conversation with you so don't be scared of us don't don't be worried about calling us up and just saying can we chat about this more because it doesn't sit right on that topic of questions what what are the most like i'm sure there must be a hundred but have you got questions that people always phone about and go i don't get that or i about a sample should i starve my dog should i do this okay your top five faqs that you get in your job Oh, that's a good one. Um, a lot of people, I think, call us up when we give that frustrating diagnosis of spindle cell proliferation. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> They're really annoying to get. And they say, can you please try and lean onto, you know, is this a, an neoplasm or is this reactive fibroplasia? Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Feel free to give us a call because sometimes we can give you a bit more information than what we've provided in the report. Mm-hmm. But really with cytology it's a huge limitation is mesenchymal cell proliferations um we can guess but there's a good chance we'll be wrong so we do get calls about those kind of things and that's fine 
So, so the the answer then generally there is, if it's unclear on what I can tell you, then you've got to go get a biopsy. Absolutely. Yep. They're just frustrating ones for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do we get? Certainly with fasting, a lot of people will call up and say, oh, I haven't fasted before something like a stim. And our protocol will say, you know, please fast before an ACTH stim. Often that's not necessary. Okay. Um, and certainly in an emergency, if you have a, you know, potential Addison's dog, absolutely not. So a lot of times that's just to try and avoid a lipemic artifact, but there's ways that we can get around that in our lab. We have special things we can add to the blood to try and get rid of some of that lipemia. So it's still worth submitting. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. I'll tell you one that jumps in as soon as you say stem test, the one that I always struggled with. So a dog that's on treatment for hyperadrenocorticism, the timing of when you do a stem test compared to medication, how long after medication, is there anything in there? Does it like, is there a recommendation for that? Oh, that's such a good question. And to be honest, I end up referring our clients to our medicine consultant, who is an absolute gun with uh, hyperadrenocorticism. Because once it comes, you'll find us pathologists are pretty bad once it gets to things about questions about treatment. Okay, cool. All right. So we will. We'll, we'll, we haven't touched a drug in a few years. <laughs> All righty. Is, is that us or is there anything else that, that jumps to mind? No? Nope. Phone you more. I think that's it. Phone Rebecca. I'm happy if you're happy. Phone Rebecca. She's lonely in her office. Give her a call. <laughs> Please, so lonely. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. That was really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you.